Um, we're so excited today to have John Pavlitz with us. Um, John, thank you so much. John is a writer, pastor, activist based in North Carolina. That's where he is right now. And he's a 25-year veteran in the trenches of local church ministry, which as you can read, uh, tell from his reading, that really comes across uh, his actual hands-on work in the church setting. Um, but John is committed to equality, diversity, and justice, both inside and outside faith communities. He is author of A Bigger Table, Hope and Other Superpowers, and Stuff That Needs to Be Said. John has also written Low, An Honest Advent Devotional, and Rise, An Honest Lenten Devotional. So check those out as we are quickly coming upon the Advent season. But today we are here to talk about John's latest book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk. And many of us have been reading this throughout the months. And John, I got to tell you, we got some questions. <laughs> Excellent. I'm so, I'm so glad. I'm looking forward to being with you all. Thank you for, for the invitation. Thanks for reading the book and uh, can't wait to get started. Yeah. Let's, let's start with this. Um, why did you feel that it was important to write this book at this time? Well, actually, the book started off very differently. Um, it was dealing with a lot of the same topics, um, but it was, I think, a little bit more um, from a distance. It was kind of diagnosing the, the toxic issues in religion, but it, it became much more personal because I began writing the book in January of 2020. And I remember just going to this church building and getting the, the whole building to myself and started writing the book. And as news about this health scare on the horizon, uh, you know, every day I would go and I would be writing the book that I planned to write that I was supposed to write. And I started realizing I was pulling in all this news and it was starting to affect the writing. And I was trying to just refer to it uh, tangentially and just trying to refer to it in passing. And it, it soon became clear that with the pandemic and as I moved into writing, um, we had the high profile shootings of unarmed black people and we had all of the protests and counter protests and then the election was coming. So I realized I can no longer write the book that I was going to write and had a real crisis and uh, had gone to my agent and said, I can't write this book. Let's just bag the whole thing. And she said, well, let's just hold on a second. And uh, why don't we meet with your editor? And uh, we did. And I had a conversation with her and she was wonderful. She had actually edited a bigger table. And so I knew I had a little comfort level with her. And she said, well, what book could you write right now? And I took a couple of weeks and got back to her and said, this is the book that I can write. And we pivoted. And this is what, this is the book that came out of that. So it became much more personal, a little bit more visceral. And uh, it was kind of a real time documentary of this particular point in the life of this nation, especially uh, through the lens of my progressive faith. So it became uh, much more personal than I had intended to be, but, but the process was that I yielded a book that I really believed in uh, deeply. And uh, so that's, that's how it happened. I'm gonna go off script here, but um, sure. this, this book really resonated with a lot of us that have maybe grown up in conservative spaces um, mm -hmm. and have made shifts to more progressive spaces. What was your journey like? Did you have a shift at some point or how did you come to this progressive minded theology that you hold? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and so I had this idea of God, a God who um, loved me fully and made everything, and yet and knew me, and you know, intimately. But yet, I was always a little afraid of this God, and that was the God that I grew up with. This tension of this God who was for me and yet always seemed to be testing me or so I felt. And I drifted away from that faith as I got into my college years and ended up meeting my um, soon-to-be wife during the time after college. And we were both raised in a very similar environment. And what happened was we were getting ready to get married and we felt a pull back to organized religion, back to the church, even though we had been sort of estranged from it and found this little, um, we did something really spiritual. We um, Googled, I mean, we looked in the yellow pages at the time. We looked at the yellow pages for churches and many of them wouldn't marry us for a lot of reasons. And then one of those churches, a United Methodist church with a female pastor said, why don't you come down and see what we're about? And then um, we'll see, you know, we'll talk about marrying you. And we went to this church, this little, you know, about 80 people in this little chapel and we experienced so much of what we were missing from organized religion. And that kind of pulled us back into the church. And what happened is that I started, um, well, we both did volunteering for this really small youth program. And that program grew and to the point where I was offered a position as a paid uh, pastor or paid youth worker, which was completely foreign to me. But what happened as a result of that was I got pulled into the world of church and um, and realized there are some tensions there. That there's the, the being a pastor is a very political job. You have to manage a lot of people's expectations. And I started to feel tension between the person I was being called to be as I leaned into my faith and the pastor that I was expected to be. And so there was a lot of compromise that started to take place in what I was saying and how I was saying it. And that is kind of began my, my evolution uh, or my progression or whatever you want to call it. Um, I think the issue of sexuality for me was my gateway issue into this deconstruction where I, I was really um, experiencing what I thought was what I would call life arguing with your theology. So I had a theology that I, I knew I was supposed to believe and teach. And yet I was having these experiences of life that were kind of in conflict with those. And so I thought, well, let me just look at a couple of those verses. I'll just attack those clobber verses and I'll just see what they say. And, and I thought that was all I was going to be doing. And but what happened was I realized as I started down that road, OK, maybe this verse doesn't mean what I was always taught that it meant. And but that also affected the sentences on either side of that. And the, and, the, and the books that they were a part of. And then the whole Bible, I began re-examining all that I had been taught. And it was sort of a reassessing of my story. And so it was an, an incremental process. It wasn't like I had some you know, epiphany or this moment where I just pivoted. It was really a slow uh, movement that was happening as I was a pastor. So it wasn't like I say it's real easy to go through. Well, it's not easy, but it's easier to go through deconstruction as a civilian Christian. But to do so as a ministry leader and someone who is expected to stand up on that platform or in that pulpit and be very sure about what they're saying, I started to feel that inconsistency or that tension. Yeah. 
Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I know um, sure. it's it's definitely a vulnerable process to go through deconstruction, especially when there's all eyes on you. And so, um, well, it is, and it, and really for all of us, what the, the community that we we are a part of, it's such a powerfully beautiful thing that that faith community can be. But inherent in that is often, in my case, even realizing for the people in my church, there was a sense of affinity that was based on what we believed. And so if you didn't believe all of those things to the same degree that everyone else did, you felt really uncomfortable. And uh, there was a worry that you would be pushed to the periphery of that community. And I think that's a very real issue for all of us. The desire to belong is so strong that often we will be silent about those questions or we'll talk around them. And it's really the church should be the place where we can be the most authentic version of ourselves. And yet that doesn't always happen. Go ahead, Chelsea. I was going to say, um, this kind of gets to the audience of the book. D did you write this thinking that, were you getting a lot of feedback from individuals kind of in that space right now, that in that space, especially with everything that was happening with the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd and, and other black and brown lives. And so is that, is, is that who it was directed at? Was it directed for yourself? Like, uh, how did you think through as your, who's the audience? Well, I've, ever since I started doing this work very publicly about eight or nine years ago, I started to accumulate stories and I have this influx of people who started sharing their journeys with me. And I, I tell people, I see myself now as less a pastor and author and more as a war correspondent, as a collector of stories that I get to go into either virtually or, you know, I actually travel and get on the ground with people. And I say, Hey, tell me what's happening here on the ground. So I can tell the folks back home. And then I, I sift all these stories. And so the book and the writing is always about trying to um, translate those stories so that other people can receive them. So I'm, I'm, I'm always sharing with regard to not only what I believe, but the, the hearts of so many people who share their questions and their struggles and their trauma with me. And so that's always, it's about trying to make sure that those, those stories are represented in a, in a, in a way that can be received. Yeah, because I mean, it really can be a lonely place, like you're saying, when you're having these questions come up, but you're in this community who's saying, we don't ask those kind of questions here, and you don't exactly know where your next step is. I know I have friends that are in conservative spaces, but their community's there, and they just don't know how or like what the pathway is to something else. Often we tell yeah. people you can't do that, but we don't help them see how they can do it. Right, and I think there's what I, when I was going through this, I ended up moving from this really large church where I was serving. I had, I had an equity of trust there and I had relational capital because I'd known these people for a long time. So I could nudge the community. I could challenge them. I could ask different questions. But I also knew there was a place where I couldn't go. And I learned to nuance that really well. And then I went to a new church, didn't have that equity of trust, didn't have that relational capital. And it was, uh, it was, it did not go well at all. I only lasted five months there because I had outgrown talking around or softening my language. And that church was, didn't want that. And so, I, you know, I was ended up being fired from that church. But what I learned through that process was not long after writing a blog post called If I Have Gay Children, 
And that was an effort to humanize something that I think many Christians dehumanize, this sort of topic of sexuality. And that blog reached millions of people and allowed me to do the work that I do now. But what I found out was after I had written that, so many people from my churches where I'd served said, oh, thank you for writing this because I had had these questions. I had had these these tensions, but didn't feel like I was safe to express them. And you've given me permission. And I think that's a lot of the work I I try to do is say, here's a a pastor, here's a... um, someone who's been in that world and since he's asking the question well that gives people the freedom to do the same yeah you definitely did that for our group um audra has a question audra has a question um at the time you wrote the book the pandemic had been had not been dragging on for two plus years nor had january 6th happened what would you add or maybe what would you do differently today is there anything you you know didn't include or is there stuff that you wish you hadn't said Wow, I think that this book is actually the in many ways a continuation of a book that I wrote, the first book called The Bigger Table. And I remember writing, it's interesting because I was writing that book right before the 2016 presidential campaign. And it was actually nearing, we were doing the final editing and getting ready to do, you know, all the the advanced stuff. The book was already written. And then we realized what was starting to happen in our country and my editor said listen this is gonna this book is gonna come out in the middle of this so we maybe you should speak directly to it and what I did was I actually waited um, until the election and I, I, I wrote right after the election how I was feeling and that sort of set up the things that I ended up talking about in the book and since we've reissued the book I, I put a chapter they let me put a chapter at the end saying basically okay i have this belief in this in these ideas and the the book was about creating spiritual community where disparate people can gather and feel seen and heard and loved and and i said you know i believed that but then we had a presidential uh, campaign and an election and we've had all these all this time now of what's happened in our country and now i'm not sure how big a table i actually want and so for me, I was facing my own fraudulence and hypocrisy and inconsistency in realizing there were people that I was now reticent to welcome. And so the book that you've all been reading is really the, the, the most recent thoughts that I had about all of that. But now what I would say is it's simply I've been pushing more into the fatigue that's created by all these relational fractures right? Because we can talk about the issues of the book. We can talk about racism. We can talk about homophobia. um, We can talk about nationalism. But ultimately, this all trickles down into our relationships and our churches, our families, our neighborhoods. We all have people who we are estranged from uh, because of what's happened. And I guess I would probably, which I'm kind of doing now in my writing is in in the blog, is speak to uh, the collateral damage of all of that emotionally. And um, so it's not just intellectual stuff. It's not just debates on topics. These are the people that we love. Yeah. And we did get a lot of questions about that, but I'm just going to pause here. Does anybody have on the call have a question they want to <clears throat> or jump in? Yeah, don't be shy. Yeah, don't be shy. But um, we did get a lot of questions about, especially with chapter 15, Love Your Damn Neighbor. Mm-hmm. 
it was a challenge for many of us, honestly, to read the chapter and then to talk about it. And I wonder if you could just speak a little bit more to that, um, especially about how to love and to have a relationship with people you feel ha have beliefs that hurt people. I think that's a big tension yeah. for a lot of us. And so how do we actively love people who are actively hurting people? Right. I mean, that's the rub, because what the challenge is, we're called to, I'm, I'm called to, as, as a follower of Jesus, I'm called to love my neighbor and my, and the least of these and my enemy. And often my enemy is doing damage to the least of these. And that's really where the rubber meets the road in all this. For me, I've landed in a place where I want to make sure I, I keep the humanity of the person in front of me. So that means I can oppose their beliefs. I can directly call out their behavior. I can confront them really boldly and clearly in, in a way that might even be offensive to them. But if I can retain their humanity, then I feel okay with that because I look at Jesus in like chapter 23 of, of um, Matthew's gospel, basically over and over saying to the religious people, hey, these are, I'm giving you hard words and the words are still redemptive coming from Jesus because I think he was fueled not by his intention to hurt someone, but his compassion for people who were being damaged. And so I try to keep that in mind. Um, the problem with all of this is our, every relationship that we have with people is so individual. It's so unique. And so sometimes there'll be people in our lives who are not receptive anymore. They're not, they're not open and they're not taking us seriously. And they're also, sometimes their beliefs are so toxic that we, we have to err on the side of marginalized, vulnerable, oppressed people who aren't present in those relationships. So if I can explain it this way, I talk about the idea of four Marias. So four people named Maria. And if I said to someone, do you believe that these four Marias are of the same inherent worth? And everyone would say yes. But then I would say, well, one of those Marias is a transgender teenager living in Missouri. And one of those Marias is a migrant on the border. And one of those Marias is a Muslim woman. And, and on and on and say, do those, and one, the other Maria is your neighbor or your church friend or your family member. What happens is we usually err on the side of the Maria that we know because we're trying to preserve the relationship. What happens is we often then do that to the detriment of the other three Marias who need to be represented in that exchange. So it's a really delicate balance of fighting for people for that relationship and then trying to make sure that we are doing the larger work of um, bringing justice and equity. There is no right way. There's no wrong way. It's all messy because we are going to get it wrong. And we are going to have those moments where we feel like we're compromising. Uh, for an example, I wrote a blog post called um, Trump Supporter, Can We Talk? And it was basically saying, I want you to know something. Uh, you think I'm your enemy, but I'm not. I'm actually for you that I want uh, affordable health care for my family, but I want it for your family too. And I want the, the environment to be healed, not just for me, but for you and for your family. And what happened was many activists from the left said, well, hey, why are you trying to make peace with these people who are my oppressor? Um, so that's a really tough question to answer other than I know that that relentless uh, attempt to love the other is what I'm called to. And um, yeah, so there's a little bit of that. 
one of my favorite lines in it uh, in your book is, um, "But at least I can have enemies," or something like it. Like we have permission to have enemies, and and name yeah. that that's okay too. Yeah, that I get to have enemies. It's a great thing. Uh, you, you know, that's the. I think what I love about the work that I get to do, and I think what this book talks about quite clearly, is that I don't have to be passive. I can have that ferocity for humanity. I can be bold and confrontational and still reflect the heart of Jesus or my faith convictions or whatever I believe God to be. I think there is a, 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 a kind of a, a lie that's been perpetuated that we always have to be kind of sweet and, and gentle. And that's not what Jesus was. And it's not what where love calls us to always be. Yeah, we have something we say um, around the collective table, which Jesus wasn't nice. And I think we kind of get that confused sometimes. Niceness isn't compassion. Yeah, we, us, but. We've, we talk in, uh, in one of my online courses about niceness addiction. You know, I can remember being at a church. I, I may have talked about it in the book, but going to this church in New Jersey and this this uh, talking to all these people about the same things we're talking about. And then a woman saying, you know, John, but we're nice. We're a nice church where we want to be thought of as nice. And, and I said, well, nice is great, but Christ-like is actually good too, which is very different as we know. Uh, Chelsea, there's um, two questions in the chat. Yeah. I'm kind of trying okay. to pair things together. We have a lot of questions about prayer, but before we get to that, um, I have to talk to you about, in chapter eight, on page 98, you say this great quote, if evangelicals were just a fraction as burdened to stop poverty, hunger, systemic racism, or bigotry as they were about policing LGBTQ folks' bedrooms, bathrooms, and body parts, we'd have very little poverty or hunger or racism or bigotry. And Jesus's prayer that the earth look more like heaven would be materializing in our midst and a tangible movement of God would be unmistakable. And I read that quote and I was so fired up and I was like, yeah, those damn evangelicals, like all upset, you know? And then I started to like internalize it a little bit. And I was like, you know, what if I wasn't worried about X, Y, and Z? How might that help to create, you know, a world closer to the one God desires for us? And sometimes I think progressives, like we tend to think like, oh, we're, we're righteous, right? Like we have it all figured out. And those evangelicals yeah. don't know what they're talking about. What do you see as ways that progressives get distracted from bringing the God's kingdom to earth? Like, well, how do we get tied up, burdened, distracted? Well, one of the things the book talks about is, is the power of fear. And it's really easy for us to see that manifested in evangelical conservative religion. But it, it also works in our experience, too, because we're looking at a group of people and basically saying, look at how horrible everything is and we're look at what's happened to the church because of these people so we've actually inflated artificially inflated you know their power and we've made ourselves perpetually terrified of them so i think that you know that fear it actually works just as much we don't we don't progress from that we don't we don't age out or, or progress out of being terrified and no one is at their best when they're terrified. And so I think we have to be really careful not to project all our fears into a group of people who believe what we used to believe, right? Because that's the thing about the work I do. As hard as I am on, on conservative Christians, I also came from a lot of that world. And I know what they think and what they're told and what they're taught. 
and I know what they think about what they were taught about people like me when I was in that environment. So I try to have a little bit of empathy for the fact that there are similarities in us. We're, we're all looking at the other and deciding that they are the cause of my turmoil. Yeah. And they, and they may be, but they're also, it's uh, the question is, well, if you're a person of faith, how big of, how big a God do you actually have? And do you, do you believe in that kind of expansive, powerful God and your agency in the world to reflect that God? And so if we keep those, you know, those two questions in our minds, I think it'll make us less prone to irrational fear. That's good. Um, we did get, we got a lot of questions about the prayer chapter. We even um, had to come back and talk to about, about it the next week because we, we were talking about it so much, but um, one of the questions is, how do you stay connect? Like, how do you stay connected to God through prayer, without prayer? Like, what is what does that look like? How does that prayer work in your life like that? Yeah, I, there was a time in after I had left the church, uh, the the one this this one church, the small small C church, left this church and no longer had a place to serve for the first time in seventeen years. I remember crying about that, being just so brokenhearted that not this Sunday, I don't have a church to be a part of. I don't have a community to represent or to preach to. And then I remember like shortly after that, getting this kind of awakening of surprise and joy that, you know what the other great news is though, is for the first time in 17 years, I don't have a church where I have to go. I don't have to represent anyone else's faith, but my own. So I can ask anything and I can say everything. And as a result of that, you know, I can remember praying and I was doing what I always did, you know, during prayer. I learned to uh, try to impress God with my grasp of the language, right? I, we, we all know what it's like when we hear someone praying out loud and their words are flowery and their words are performative to some degree. And I remember, you know, praying like that and then stopping and, say, and saying, God, you know that I don't want to pray right now. And you know the reasons why I, I struggle to pray. So I'm going to trust that that's enough of a prayer. And, and so that's the way I began to approach my life. So there are times when I'm informally just realizing the presence of whatever I believe God to be. Um, but I, I can experience that um, relationship with God through all sorts of things, through music and through art and through food and through relationships and nature and community. And so I stopped being dependent on maybe the act of dialoguing directly, um, but that comes out in as I journal and it comes in as I rest um, and as I laugh with my kids. So I think prayer had became more of an organic natural byproduct of of my life uh, and that's what it for me it should be because the moment we try to um put you know the other part about the you know the prayer we can we can talk more about the specific questions people have but the idea that i had i said god knows what i need and i don't know if god i don't believe god is playing a game with me that god needs me to ask or i'm not going to be attended to so I, I trust in the character of God and the, the fact that only this God knows my heart. Um, so I rest in that. 
um, just a quick story. I have a four-year-old and on the way to preschool each morning, I try to ask him questions about God. And this morning we were talking about prayer and I said, you know, when you're frustrated or you're happy or, you know, whatever you can talk, you can just tell God I'm frustrated. I'm happy. And then I said, and you, when you're going to the bathroom, just tell God I'm going to the bathroom. And he like, just thought that was the funniest thing. And I, I was just like, yeah, it's like just in, infused into everything we do and um, try to teach him that. But yeah, well, and I can, you know, I can remember there have been times as a youth pastor and, and, and as a pastor, you, you get used to praying in front of people. And, and that made me much more conscious of what I was saying, how I was saying it. And it was, it was always, I was always trying to figure out what is on my heart here, as opposed to what I was saying because other people were listening or watching. And that sort of changed how I began to view it. But I can remember being with my son and he was probably around six or seven. And he said, uh, you know, he goes, if, if God is there, why doesn't he answer me? And he goes, hey, God. And he goes, see, nothing. And so it was like trying to get that kid to understand what I believe about that. But also it made me question, well, what do I believe about that? What do I believe about my 40 years at that time on the planet speaking, speaking, speaking to a God and trying to interpret what that God's answer was through my circumstances alone? And that's a, that's a tall order for us. I think it puts really undue pressure on all of us. Dana, yes. So th this may be getting into more detailed analysis on prayer, but I do remember this came up in our, in our group is, so what are your thoughts <clears throat> on, you know, intercessory prayer or when people, you know, ask, can I pray for you? Or, you know, cause sometimes at least in, in, in my experience and even some things that I've heard is that they say that that is a very therapeutic thing is knowing that other people are lifting them yeah. up, holding them in prayer. Um, just kind of curious to see how, like, you know, what your thoughts are on that. It's interesting because the, actually, uh, I don't know if any of you know this, but the book came out a year ago today. So this is the anniversary of the book's release. And I released the book. And then three days later, I had uh, brain surgery. And, uh, and what happened was, as I was going through that, it was funny because I had this outpouring of all sorts of people. And many of them were going, um, I'm, gonna, I'm praying for you, even though I know you don't want me to. And I said, well, it's not that I don't want you to. I just don't want you to feel pressure about whatever happens to me is not a result of your prayers. Um, so intercessory prayer for me, I think, is a beautiful impulse. And it's, it's natural to want to claim affinity with someone and, to, and, and solidarity. And so I think it is a beautiful connector of people. And so I never want to tell someone, hey, don't pray for, or don't offer prayer or don't tell people you're praying for them. Just realize that there, you can let go of the baggage of the results of whatever you're praying about, because that's not what this is about. This is not about changing the mind of God um, to get a certain result. And so I think um, I, I have been so encouraged by in going through that journey with people praying for me and I felt that but I don't know how it works so I can't analyze it I can only experience what that felt like yeah that was one of our questions submitted from Pandora um what do you think about those who appear to have miraculous healings Jesus asked his disciples to heal the sick aren't we his disciples <clears throat> for sure I mean but then we just have to look at those times in our lives when 
we pray for people and they they don't live or they don't get well. And then we have to ask ourselves, well, if, if there is a person of faith, a person who follows Jesus in uh, hospital room 102, and there's one in room 104, and the person in 104 doesn't get well, that's no reflection on their faith. And it's no reflection on the number of people who were praying or how fervently they prayed. So I think Jesus does say that, but I don't think, um, I don't think the expectation is there because we obviously know that Christians and people who are prayed for experience depression and they go through divorce and, and they struggle with illness. Um, so there, there, there isn't a way to sort of uh, ensure that we're gonna get the results we want. But yeah, I've been praying with and for people forever. And I don't feel like it's an insult to them or I'm not being disingenuous. I'm just changed the way I view what's happening in that moment. Yeah, I'll pause here. We did have a lot of questions and talk about prayer. Is, is anybody have a thought or, or question about prayer or anything else? They're not quiet on our weekly book club. Well, oh no, I know how that works. And you know, at, at um, you know, once we get log off, then everyone will have questions. So what I would say is anything, even if it's something that you're uncomfortable with or you you disagree with me, that's great too. Um, you know, pr prayer is one of those, it's one of those things, it's par uh, part of the book that I wanted to write in, what are the things we don't think about? We just do them because they're part of our backstory, they're part of our history, and they're part of the culture that we belong to, but what do we actually believe about how that all works? Now, these are not answerable questions, that's the other part of it, so we're just all knocking these things around, and I, I what I want people to do is read the book and I don't want them to feel like they have to agree with me theologically or politically by the time it's over. I just want them to move from wherever they are to a place of greater empathy and greater wrestling, um, because I think that will not only change our path, but it's going to alter the church or the communities that we're part of. Uh, and prayer just happens to be one of those things that I kept realizing. I don't think a lot about this, even though I do it all the time. Um, so, yeah. I have a question that's not related to prayer, but it's on the same line. Have you had, this is just kind of way off topic. Have you had individuals read your book honestly and authentically and, and just disagree with you on certain points, but aren't attacking you and if like can actually sit down and say, you know what, John, I don't agree with all this stuff, but let's talk about it in a meaningful way. Like I'm just kind of curious, because as I read through the book, I mean, I agree with almost everything. So I'm like, you know, you're speaking to the choir here. But I have, you know, I, I know individuals where one, I wonder, would they read the book? And two, if they yeah. did, could I actually have a thoughtful conversation with them about it? Well, it's funny, you know, that first book I talked about, A Bigger Table, and I, and I wrote the book and it was very, you know, it was similar content. But what happened was because I started the introduction of the Wednesday after the election and I mentioned specifically a, you know, a, a candidate uh, who was elected and then all the things that that stirred up in me. Well, there were many people who, who opened that first page and then said, nope, I'm out. Um, but there are many people who said, all right, this is really ticking me off or it's putting me on the defensive, but I'm going to keep going. And I think that happens all the time you, with a, with an audience that's, that's sort of 
has no constraints. So I can write a blog post and it can go out to the world and those words are going to find whoever they find. Often those words find people who may have thought they disagreed with me based on who they thought I was or something that I believe in. And, you know, this, I'm, if I believe this about sexuality, we don't line up, but maybe they can find a common ground in the words of Jesus that they're trying to live out and that I'm trying to live out. So it does happen all the time. The problem is we only kind of experience the people from the, the opposite poles who are the loudest, but I think there is this vast group of people in the middle and they, some of them are reading in secret. Uh, some of them tell me, hey, I love what you're writing, but I can't share it on social media. I can't talk about it at my church. Um, and that's the reality of it. Um, it's not just that they can't talk to me, but they can't talk to the people that they're close to or, or their pastor. Um, so it does happen. But I think there are a lot of people who feel like I have to somehow, which is impossible, I have to believe everything that I'm supposed to believe over here, or I have, I have to believe none of it. And the truth is, you know, we're all in a very unique theology that is really quite our own. Um, and so if we could be honest about that, I think everyone would just relax a little bit and be able to talk more. Um, our group, our group spent a long, long time this summer reading Marcus Borg. And when we were reading your book, we said, oh, John's kind of like a more aggressive, bold Marcus Borg. It's kind of like the same um, principles, right? And, and we realized that we're reading a lot of things that are just reinforcing what we already believe, um, mm. which is really helpful in a lot of ways, but that may be a good exercise for some of us progressive might be to read the other side and to see what they're actually saying as, as opposed to just shutting the book right away. And so what's the balance for us to do that also? Right, or to ask yourself, uh, okay, in this chapter, what might be the things that really anger someone who is more conservative or what might be the words or ideas that they have been conditioned to believe they need to be to dig in their heels against you know you look at something like the topic of abortion well it's really hard to approach the issue of choice or of abortion, depending on where you come from, it's really difficult to just enter that dispassionately and to say, I'm just gonna stay objective because we care deeply. Um, that's the, the other part to remember. It's that the people on the other side of whatever issue we're talking about, they feel as passionately and they also have a road that they've gone through that has led them to that belief. They have a you know, home where they were raised and a church that they were a part of and life experiences. And so they have a fully formed reason that they believe what they believe. And we usually just run into their belief. And I think we would do well to try and understand the story that, that brought that belief about or why they're voting the way they vote or why they um, profess the faith that they do. Yeah. Um, Ron, I see your question. I want to get to Scott had put a, put a question in the quote, and it kind of ties with a question um, someone else had submitted. But... I think the question basically is why stay? Um, why does faith, religion, Christianity matter? Why still practice? What holds you to it? Um, why do you think there is, is a God even? I mean, what, what is your experience? What is, how would you respond to that? Wow. I mean, you know, 
I, I tell people that I often am fighting with and for my faith tradition simultaneously. So for often I'm looking at someone and they're talking about the church or they're talking about Christians and I'm saying to them, hey, wait, that's not what a Christian is or that's not, you know, you should stay. And there are other times when I'm trying to be honest with myself and say, I know how toxic this religion has been to them. So why am I trying to make them stay? Maybe I should have them, you know, run from it. Um, and the truth is, from um, depending on the day, I have those same thoughts. Some days I think, I have I drifted so far from this that I really should just just jettison all of it. But for whatever reason, it could be some muscle memory of my past. It could be, it could be the things I've experienced in my journey as a Christian. It could be the words of Jesus. But those are all still sort of tethering me to that faith tradition. So I can't explain the whys of it. I can't explain why some days I, I feel fiercely uh, the need to reject the, the, the story. And other times I'm just holding on to it so tightly. So I don't know why we stay or why we go. I think that's, that's the challenge. Uh, I, I talk about myself as a theological mutt at this point. And so there are there are parts of different faith traditions that I hold dear and there are, you know, things that I reject about religion outright. And I'm okay with that. I think that's part of this book and my writing is that I, I don't need to apologize for what I believe and for what I don't believe. And I don't need to sort of um, fit into some idea. People look at me from a distance and they might consider me a voice for progressive Christianity or for the, the religious left or whatever. And I don't feel that. I simply feel like I represent myself uh, and I write about the way I experience life and faith. And if other people connect with that, then that's great. Then they can, but I don't need to sort of own a whole system or a whole religious tradition. I just have this patchwork experience of being a human being. Yeah, and no one's an expert on your experience with God except you. Yeah, that's right. You are you are the expert on your experience of being human, and and really, I, I've always leaned into the idea that no one is an expert on the afterlife while they're alive. I mean, there is just we have suspicions and we have hopes and we have things that we believe or think we believe, but ultimately, um, we're all dealing with incomplete information. And so we should be okay, you know, talking about that. Ron, go ahead and you have a question. You there, Ron? Ron, you there? You're unmuted. The current uh, conversation you talked to. Um, yeah. Can you hear me? Can, yep, oh, your body. Yeah. Nope, now we can't hear you. You can put it in the chat. You can type it in the chat. All right, we'll come back to him. Um, what do you think is one of the biggest obstacles of the Christian church? And then how do we overcome it? Wow. Well, the obstacle are Christians. Um, we, we, we are inherently 
you know, flawed, failing human beings trying to represent something that's perfect. So the, the hypocrisy that is going to be present is probably the, the most difficult thing to overcome. Because whether I'm in the uh, conservative or liberal, or whether I am, you know, staunchly Christian or I'm an agnostic and with suspicions, I think we, we all... Um, we all have to hold what we believe loosely. And the challenge is to enter a conversation on something and let's say about um, racism and try to bring our faith to bear in that conversation, we're inevitably gonna run into our inconsistencies and we're gonna always point out the inconsistencies of the other. Mm -hmm. So while we have this perfect God or this perfection that we seek to emulate, we are doing so as very flawed human beings. So the issues are going to be that our fear and our guilt, uh, our grief, those things are always going to um, affect how consistent we are and they're going to affect how um, convincing we are. Uh, so yeah, we are the problem, but we're the, we're the only thing we have. Yeah, we're like the problem and the solution, and then the problem again, and then the solution. Yeah, that's right. And it's because I, I think for, for my journey, it's been about realizing there is no finishing to this. There isn't a resolving of this issue or that issue. And, and conservative Christianity, it leans into the idea that this is settled and that I'm finished and that I don't have to do any wrestling. And I think progressive faith by nature is about saying, okay, I'm still not quite there yet and I'm still evolving. And be, so that, that's where those two ideas, re religion, the, the philo philosophy of those two systems is always gonna be at odds. Um, you know, a Christian will say to me, the Bible says it, you know, God said it and I believe it and that's it, right? And I say, well, here's what I think the Bible says about this, let's talk about this. So it's, it's always gonna be pretty messy. Ron, you want to try again? Yeah, um, sorry, had a, I guess I have a shaky connection. So uh, going back to uh, interaction with other church members within your own church or outside other churches, how do you, what's your personal way of interacting with people that may not agree with you? I was toying with the idea of going like to some local evangelical churches just to have the experience of mm. you know what it's like because we hear in the news that I think it's a little bit different if you go in person and see what their services are like and yeah. you know I think it'd be an interesting challenge but is that <laughs> something you do do you actually make it a point to go to other churches that may not align with your personal views just to be challenged yeah, well, Ron, that's interesting you mentioned that i during about a year ago well, about six months ago i was toying with the idea of doing like a a series a, like a tv or web series called undercover liberal where i was going to go into different conservative church every week but the problem for me is that and it's it also affects how i answer this question um i would say 
you you have a circle of influence and there are the people that you live near there are people in your neighborhood there are people locally or that you work alongside you know you have access to people who don't believe what you believe you can actually do that and relationally you can very organically um enter that the disadvantage i have is that um if i think about my street out here everyone knows what i believe about a lot of things because I've written about them. So I come with some baggage and, it, and people already come probably ready to defend a position. But with people who don't know what I do, that's exactly how it works. I mean, we, all, we can only work in the interpersonal. I mean, that's our faith. And the part of the book talks about our faith is a working theology and it's relational. And uh, so as much as I would love to go to a church and uh, that doesn't, you know, that's conservative. Here, here's a good example. I've done this work for eight or nine years outside of the local church in this sort of virtual capacity. And I travel and speak all the time. And I'll speak at Jewish congregations and Muslim communities. And I've spoken at humanist events. And I've spoken at every sort of denomination of mainline Christianity. But I've never been invited by a conservative Christian church to have a conversation like this. And it tells me that as much, there are tons of good people in those churches. There are beautiful people doing life-affirming work. And if you went to one of those churches, that's what you would find. Um, but you would also find a theology of exclusion and discrimination that was inherent in that. Um, but if you looked at any one of those people individually, there's something you could work, there's something you could work with there. People individually are always um, better than people are collectively. I think the more we get into that sort of a hive mentality in the church, that's when it becomes dangerous. Um, but I don't think we ever want to stop trying to relate to people and express the things that we believe and hear what they believe. That's what this should be about. I think that's the ministry of Jesus was that collector of stories like I talked about. Well, it seems like even in the Methodist Church, I, I guess there's going to be some upcoming discussion about division in the Methodist Church. I've not, I'm looking forward to what the update is, but it seems like even within the Methodist Church, there's divisions yes. that may split it apart. And even though there's been efforts to have discussions, it's evidently failing. So I don't know, it makes it a little problematic and disheartening that. <laughs> Even within our own church, we can't seem to have a dialogue. Yes. And, well, that, and that I think, you know, I've written about that in If God is Love is that if, you know, there are however many people on this call, we, we if we all claim to be Christian, we all have a slightly different personalized individual Jesus. And you just, that happens with everyone that we know. And so that's why churches local churches are so fraught with difficulty that's why denominations exist that's why we don't have just one giant you know community of christian people we have all these various strains because you know eventually people said well we agree on 19 out of 20 things but that one thing is going to be a deal breaker and we're going to leave and so that's how the that fracturing happens and um that's almost going to be impossible to overcome it's so we have to do the best work we can about uniting as many people around the things that we have where we have commonality in the church 
Yeah, and Claudia had a good question. On page 16, there's this um, little chart that has arrows going back and forth that say fully understanding God, underestimating God. And I wonder if you could just explain that a little bit. Well, once we once we feel like we, you know, I don't even know how my microwave works really, or I don't know, you know, I can't fix things. Uh, I, I'm not, my, you know, so if I'm going to try to claim that I understand the creator of the universe, well, that's pretty tall order. And there's a place of arrogance that I operate from. And so the moment I feel like I've figured God out, or I have made sense of something, and it's real clear and orderly, that's when I begin to second guess myself, because I don't believe that I'm going to ever have a God that I'm capable of fully grasping. And because the moment I did that, it's not big enough to be God. And so that's kind of what that what that means. It's that I just always want to be in that place of learning and wonder and mystery. And if those things aren't present, um, then we've probably atrophied in our belief. And again, not to point fingers at more conservative religion, but what that says is, hey, here are these scriptures. Here are you to interpret those. Here's what you're supposed to believe about all these issues. And it's taken all of the all of that expansive nature of God, the surprise of God away. Yeah, I read somewhere, if you think you're holding God, it's not God. It's probably not God. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. All right, this is we're kind of winding down on time, but I, I really love to ask this question. Um, and just based on all of your work in ministry and now in this public role, what is your hope for the future of the church? Mm. I, people ask me all the time, what is the future of the church? And I tell them, I, I don't, I think the future of the church is being formed right now, often by people who the church has already rejected or who have left the church or people like yourselves who are wrestling and feeling a, a conflict in the church, because I think we're just going to have to move to a place where, um, I don't think the future of the church is a building for an hour on Sunday. Peter decided to shut. So I'm on my phone. But anyway, I, I was I was saying that I think the future of the church is is going to be about us finding people where they are and building relationships with them and not having to decide what the church is by how many people show up on a Sunday. It's going to be how many people are we reaching in relationship? And I that there's never a reason to lose hope. For that, I mean, we are always able, we have tremendous agency in our lives to, uh, to reach people, to do good work. And uh, so that's what we're going to do. So the church is always going to be present. It's just, I think, going to look a little bit different from the outside. Thanks for saying that. We're, um, we're in the midst of, of, in that shift right now and trying to realize it's not about numbers and it's about authenticity and vulnerability and um it can be a really scary place to be a lot of times. And so we're kind of building as we're walking and um, your book has helped us to do that. I think it has given us permission to ask questions. It has given us the encouragement that we're not doing Christianity wrong. Um, and really, I think the way that you write this expansive understanding of God is kind of what we're after, that it's never done, that we're um, constantly working towards and that we get to do it together. And so we're grateful for not only the book, but your time and the work that you put into the world. 
Um, and so John, just thank you so much for being with us this afternoon and we're grateful. Oh, it's been a joy to be with you and uh, be encouraged and please reach out to me if I can ever be uh, a help or resource as you just go walk down this road together. So, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you so, so yes. much. Thank you, John. Well, come right. to Southern California, come visit. <laughs> I would love to see you tour in Southern California. <laughs> right now. <laughs> yes. Thank Especially you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you everybody else for joining and for your questions and for reading. If you want more information about John, we'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. Um, we're we're going to put this as a podcast in YouTube or I can email it out, but he has some really great work.